Good morning, everyone. We're going to turn our attention to God's Word now. It's going to be in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4, starting at verse 1. We're continuing in our sermon series where we're looking at the biblical theme of humility. So hear these words. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the words that we just read. Lord, would you be with us um, as we look to grow in our spiritual life or to come to know you um, in a new way this morning or perhaps for the first time. I just pray that you would... uh, Send your spirit to comfort, to convict, and to reveal what we need to know from your scripture. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I recently came across a really fun case study on how people change. It is the story of Crystal Jones, who as a college graduate signed up for AmeriCorps. She was sent to an inner city school. AmeriCorps is a, um, is a government-run uh, offering that basically gives young people the opportunity to teach before they're credentialed in underserved communities, and Crystal Jones was one of these such teachers, and in her first year of teaching first grade at this inner city school, she discovered many students who were behind, some who barely knew their ABCs, others who really weren't even able to do uh, basic handwriting, Some who were okay with their letters, but were not so great in behavior in the classroom. And so she got to thinking, and she came up with an idea that was genius, but it was also sitting there in plain sight for anyone who would want to see it. What she did was think, what do first graders want to be more than anything else? And she figured out what they want to be more than anything else was third graders. So true, like when I spend time with my little one, my two-year-old Glory, anytime there is somebody slightly older than her at the park, Dad is no longer an interesting play partner, but whoever is just a little bit older becomes the fixation, and the hope is that they can become friends. You see, if there's somebody just a few years down the road, 
we can compare ourselves to them. And for a first grader, a third grader is just a little bit faster, just a little bit smarter, knows just a little bit more about what is going on at school. And so Crystal decided that what she would do is to go into the classroom every day and to tell her first graders that their goal by the end of the year is to become third graders, an ambitious goal, but one her class started to undertake. Not only that, but she also made it clear that they were scholars, that every first grader in her class, the dominant theme would be scholarship. Every morning, they would recite what a scholar is. They would say at the beginning of the day, a scholar is someone who loves to learn and is really good at it. Anytime somebody would come to visit the classroom, Crystal would introduce the students in her classroom as scholars. In fact, she made each person in the class address each other, not by just their name, but also scholar. So it would be scholar Bob or scholar Judy. You get the idea. Crystal gave this first grade class an identity and a goal. Within six months of using this technique, her first grade class passed the first grade reading comprehension test. And 90% of her students were at a third grade level by the end of the year. This reminds me of a story I've told before, but it bears repeating on my resume in order to get hired to be the youth pastor at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, I have on there an award from Living Sacrifices Church. It was an honorary preaching award that I got when I was living in inner city Los Angeles, and I was invited by one of my neighbors to come to her little storefront church And there I was invited to preach. Little did I know that there were 15 other people invited to preach on that day. But nonetheless, by the end of the day, I was handed this certificate, honorary preacher. You see, you have to own your identity. You have to have a goal. You have to say what you are, and who God says you are. And I love how Crystal and uh, Jamie, who was the pastor of this little storefront church, treated every single person who preached on that day as if they were the preacher that God knew that they were. She even called her children deacons and elders to help them to understand their identity and where they were headed. The scripture we just read in Ephesians 4 starts with a therefore, because for the first four chapters of Ephesians, Paul is laying down what it means to have an identity 
in Jesus Christ. He's making a case for this church that they are a new humanity, a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. In Ephesians 2, 12 through 15, he says it this way, For he himself is our peace, speaking of Jesus Christ who has made the two groups, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, and he has destroyed the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. This dividing wall of hostility, these two groups, those who are part of the Jewish tribe and everybody else, and how there was so much history of hostility and anger, but when Jesus came, He broke down the dividing walls of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, and his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. You see, when we are a new humanity, the dividing walls that were once there are no longer there between us. And we're invited to see and act in a totally new way. Just like Crystal told her first graders that they're going to become third graders, Paul urges us. He says this is an urgent message for the church, the church in Ephesus and for us. He says, I urge you to live in this manner, one that we've been exploring for the last four weeks. This this conduct that looks like patience and humility and gentleness. And he says, this is where I'm placing my urgent plea for you, church in Ephesus. Would you conduct yourself in this way? We need to keep the bond of peace. He says we must do everything we possibly can to keep the bond of peace. To put up with one another. Where once we saw the differences, the differences in ethnicity, the differences in personality, the differences in um, how rich or poor, all the ways in which we can find differences, even certain theological differences. He's saying, but more important than seeing all the differences is to remember that we all have one faith, one baptism, one hope, One God, and that God is in all and through all. And so we can rest relationally in this great, beautiful truth that God is creating in us a wholly new way to be human. And that is what the church is at its best. When the church is unified, there is no telling what can happen. 
It starts with the church. If the church gets this right, if the church can learn to live at peace and bear with one another in love, then the world will begin to learn what that looks like. And for the last three weeks, we have been on the same exact theme about how the world will discover what it looks like. If you remember from 1 Thessalonians, we discussed that by living a daily life, increasing in love every day, doing good works with humility, works with our hands, leading a quiet life, that we will find, that we will garnish the respect of outsiders. Or last week, we talked about in Matthew 5, how in the same way, when we are salt in light, and we let our light shine in the darkness, that those who are not yet following Jesus will see the good deeds, the good works that are done by the Christian church, and it will praise the Father in heaven, that it will give glory. People that don't even know Jesus yet will give glory to God in their recognition of the beauty and the good works of the church. Ephesians 2.8 gets at this too. It actually connects Christian salvation to good works. It says this, for it is by the grace that you, that you have been saved through faith. So by grace you were saved when you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and you just said, I want to follow you, Jesus. I believe in the good news of your gospel. And gr God gave you the grace to accept this wonderful, marvelous truth, this supernatural truth this gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, but we become the handiwork of God created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. This continues on as we look at places like 1 Thessalonians we, uh, chapter 6, it says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way... They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they will, may, will take hold of the life that is truly life. Did you see how many times we connected humility to good deeds over the last four weeks? Because humility is a posture that begins to look outside of oneself and towards others. 
And when we assume the posture of humility, we are able to see the needs of others in a way we wouldn't be otherwise. It's so easy for us to focus on what's our problems and our needs. But what happens when we do that is we miss the opportunity to do these good works. All of this conversation about good works is actually rooted in an ancient Jewish teaching from Leviticus chapter 19 called the mitzvot. This is a, a tradition that comes out of fulfillment of the law. You see, in Leviticus, we find many, many laws, but the embodiment, the doing of the law is where this great word mitzvot comes from, and it became so associated with good deeds because it was all about loving your neighbor, and any time the law was fulfilled in a genuine way from goodness of heart, it was known as a mitzvot. And so these good deeds were so prized and valued in the Jewish community that they were named and labeled. So in a way, we could, instead of striving like Crystal's classroom to be scholars, we could strive like Leviticus invites us in all the scriptures we just read to be people of the mitzvot. People of good deeds. Not out of obligation, but as we're invited in this text to live a life worthy of the free gift that God has given us, of the generous gift that God has given us. It's made manifest in our good works. And let's be honest. Who we are becoming matters. The question becomes, are we becoming more generous year after year? Is our Bible study producing these types of mitzvahs? mitzvahs? G.K. Chesterton once wrote this, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. In a way, it is easy to go to church and sit in a pew. It is easy to study and read the Bible. There are so many sources online. If you are looking for a way to know more about your Bible, there are so many sources, more than ever in history, if you are looking for that. So it's pretty easy. It's even easier to debate who is right and who is wrong and to have a take, who is in and who is out. These debates are easy. But humility instead of pride, serving instead of overpowering, Waiting on the Lord's timing and not complaining when we don't get what we want when we want it. Being generous to those who are in need. Bearing with one another in love 
when we've been hurt, wounded, lied about, forgiving one another, seeking the bonds of peace and unity, now that's a worthy challenge. That is an invitation to a life that is truly life. Bible doing is the point of Bible study. That we might live a verse. We will live these verses one by one as we receive the grace of God and then step into the invitation of the commandments of God, the urgency to be patient and humble and forgiving. And then the true joy of discovering family in each other and being connected to the one God who makes it all possible. As we lead toward communion, I pray that you will prepare your heart to think through as we sing this next song, who are those people in your life that you need to pray for because they've hurt you? Who are those people in your life that you may have hurt, whether knowing it or not knowing it, that you would say a prayer of peace and courage and repentance, and that you would seek to find unity within this church, even though there is so many different kinds of people. We all have this bond of Jesus Christ's body broken and blood poured out and this good news that we share one faith, one baptism, and one good God. As we sing, would you prepare your hearts for communion? Lord Jesus, thank you that you have called us again to humility, to patience. And Lord, would you produce love in St. Andrew's would you create the bonds of peace that run deep to fortify us? Lord, would you make us a people of the mitzvah, a people that do good deeds and make it our task to think through what others might need and bless them first before we think through what we need. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.